Welcome to Hacker in the Fed. Today, Hector and I are going to talk about a recent Dropbox hack that relied on a phishing attack to steal credentials as well as multi-factor authentication codes. We're going to discuss some of the other tactics attackers use to work around multi-factor authentication as well as the technology that may replace the passwords and codes you use today. Finally, we're going to respond to a few user questions about the FBI. You should walk away from today's episode with a better sense of how to prevent hackers from gaining access to your most sensitive accounts. Hector Monsegar was responsible for some of the most notorious hacks Former ever. FBI Special Agent Chris Tarbell. Hackett and FBI informants participated in some of the world's most infamous hacks. It caused up to $50 million in damages. A life in the shadows. Cyber attacks on the rise. Welcome to Hacker in the Fed. I'm Chris Tarbo, former FBI special agent, working my entire career in cybercrime, and now the founding partner at Naxo. I'm joined always by Hector Monsiger, former black hat hacker, red teamer, researcher, and cybersecurity expert, and also friend and podcast co-host. Hector, how's it going? Oh, it's going pretty well. How about yourself, my friend? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. So crazy week in uh, cybercrime this week. What do you think? Yeah, ton of stories. Um, you know, it's never ending. Cyber is always, uh, you know, popping, as, uh, as they say in the streets out here. Interesting stuff. Ransomware, hacks, all sorts of stuff. So we're going to talk about a few things tonight. We're going to go through and talk about Dropbox, the cloud uh, storage service got hacked into this this week. I saw an article that I want to talk about. The The headline was very misleading, uh, and I want to kind of get your thoughts on that and kind of rant and rave myself. That's going to lead us into this thing called Fido. I think it's a new kind of login tool that's going to happen. I think we're going to start seeing it. It's already out there. I think we're going to start seeing it in the business industry in about six months. And I think uh, about a year, year and a half from now, I think a lot of our listeners are going to be using it for their home connections. So that'll be interesting. And then we have a uh, user question that was sent into us that uh, we're going to go through that. Awesome. Looking forward to it. Let's jump right in. Let's uh, let's talk about the Dropbox hack. Uh, did you read about that this week? Oh, yeah. That's a fun one. You know, I would say that even though it's, uh, I mean, Dropbox is a huge compromise. Um, but it kind of followed suit with a lot of the other compromises we've seen more recently, right? So kind of looking forward to chat about it. Yeah. So for those that don't know what Dropbox is, Dropbox is a cloud storage and data backup uh, online. It's got about 700 million registered users. And the way this hack happened is that Dropbox employees were sent phishing emails uh, for their GitHub. Hector, can you kind of explain to the audience what GitHub is? Yeah, absolutely. Um, GitHub is a platform to, uh, rather, it's a platform that, that allows collaboration uh, and deployments or hosting of, uh, of developer code and projects. Think of it as, you know, if you guys are in a classroom and you all are creating uh, uh, school projects, you know, you guys would dedicate like one cubby or one section of the room to kind of host all of your projects. And you have somebody kind of uh, manning that uh, that section. 
you know, GitHub would allow someone to, to host the projects or allow different developers to collaborate together. It's pretty interesting. It's a great tool. And it's also owned by Microsoft, which is uh, interesting. Yeah, you can kind of go on there and find different software projects and kind of look at the code and, and, and read about the different uh, offerings they have on there. It's, it's a good space if anybody wants to go on there. It's uh, G-I-T-H-U-B, GitHub. So GitHub sent out a warning about a month ago. Be careful. There's some phishing campaigns going on trying to get people's login information, developers' login information for GitHub. Um, and it looks like a couple Dropbox developers, uh, they, they fell victim to, uh, to the phishing attack. Yeah. I mean, um, you know, the thing is that you know, regardless of, of the intended target's technical capabilities and prowess, right? The, the more, I would say, realistic looking the phishing page, the higher the chance that uh, even developers at a, a big company like uh, Dropbox can fall for it. It's interesting stuff. And basically what we have here is a good example of why education and training necessarily isn't enough. And we talked about this before. So I, I read in the story, it looked like the GitHub, the, the fake login page, had took the username and password, and that these developers did have good security, and they were using you know two-factor authentication with a one-time pass key. Does that mean the bad guy was just sitting on the other end and was able to log in that username and password in one-time login key quickly? So it had to be like a real-time hack? Or how, how do they do that, you think? Well, there's several different ways to, to kind of deal with, you know, OTP or one-time passwords or the use of like hardware authentication keys, right? Which is very popular these days. So there's a lot of different man-in-the-middle phishing techniques that could be used here. A great one recently was, you know, essentially a copy of Evo Engine X, which is a, is a platform or framework for um, engaging uh, phishing campaigns or in- engaging targets with the platform as a man-in-the-middle between the victim and the uh, target site. Just just for clarification here, the way a standard phishing campaign looks like is an attacker or adversary will buy a fake domain, they'll put together the context or the pretext, and then they'll set a platform up and, and host uh, the phishing login page on their platform. When the victim clicks on a link in the email or whatever means are used, um, the victim instead goes to the adversary's login page. The way a man-in-the-middle version works is that the attacker sits in the middle between the victim and the, um, the, the service that's being targeted, and the attacker would relay the victim's credentials over to the desired website and will actually relay back the response. So the victim actually see, feels like they just logged into the site correctly, right? They feel confident that they were not fished, and they feel confident that they were logging into the to the right site. In the meantime, the attacker in the middle is intercepting two things. One, they're intercepting um, active uh, or valid tokens, authentication tokens or cookies, as some of you may know. But also the attacker is able to facilitate and intercept the one-time password, which is pretty interesting. There's one last point I do want to make on this, right? Not to become, not to nerd it out too hard. And that is that I've seen research more recently where adversaries or, or researchers rather are coming up with clever ways to even man in the middle attack hardware authentication keys, which seems like may have been used in this case. So when these engineers logged in, the bad guys used the man in the middle and took the response back from the server and said, and they could put that on their computer. They sent it to the engineers and says, hey, you're logged in. 
But really, their computers also logged in with those same credentials, right? That is correct. So the the adversary in the middle has inherited your session. And so does the the engineer that get kicked out, or how does the attacker in the middle? How does he stay in and and do whatever he wants to do and take what he wants to take if the other computers also logged in as as that same user? Well, here's the thing, right? The attacker is the one that's actually logged in, not the user, and so. Now, it also depends on the website. It depends on the application for the website. If, in this case, GitHub or CircleCI allows multiple sessions for single users, then this could be problematic, right? This would mean that in this scenario, the attacker could be logged in and the victim could be logged in in a separate window, and it's completely fine. There's no way for the victim to really know that they've been bamboozled. I think that's a really interesting point. You know, that's I don't see that in the, any of the articles, but... It leads me to believe that might be true because they're not talking about, you know, that the the engineers knew anything was going on. They weren't, you know, immediately locked out or anything like that. So mm-hmm. that, that's an interesting point that, that maybe there was a configuration issue allowing the same user to have multiple login sessions. Well, think about it like this. A lot of these sites have to allow multiple sessions because they assume or they make the assumption that a user will log into their website right off their browser, okay? So let's say github.com. But then they also make the assumption that, well, they might also use our GitHub uh, mobile app if there is one, right? I'm just giving an example here. Sure. Uh, so, but the mobile app, when you log in, is creating an entirely new session. So now you have at least a minimum of two sessions between your laptop, browser, and your phone. Now, if we were to invalidate all sessions and set a hard limit at one, that it may disrupt uh, and cause inconvenience for users of the site. Convenience for security. They bump up against each other again. Always. Every single time. Let's finish up Dropbox. So Dropbox says that, that no customer data was taken. Um, so that's good. Just that their uh, engineers were uh, maybe not as security conscious uh, as possible. Um, they also put out the quote, uh, vigilant professionals can fall prey to a carefully crafted messages delivered in the right way at the right time. You know, a reminder that even people that work in this field uh, can be uh, taken advantage. Did you ever click on a link uh, that maybe you shouldn't have clicked on in your life? <laughs> yes, I did. Oh, I'm a uh, dick, aren't I? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe once or twice in my life I did. Um, <laughs> you clicking on that link made us friends today. So uh, why don't you tell that story? Yeah, I don't regret that. But yeah, there was there was a scenario, uh, folks, where um, one of the members of uh, of LawSec, they had compromised. Uh, I believe this may have been during the Internet Feds era. I forgot exactly when. Um, but it was a compromise of um, of Fox.com. The I would say the purpose behind the hack wasn't necessarily to attack Fox News. At least I don't think. No, I think I think it was actually into uh, the game show, the X Factor. X Factor, that's correct. Yeah. Yeah. The the idea was to get access to the X Factor database, and the the adversary who I shall not name, uh, he definitely got in, and he posted a link <laughs> to a PHP show. Um, and I logged in at like three in the morning. I said, oh, wow, that's cool. Let me click on it. I forgot I had no VPN. I had no tour. I had nothing going on. It was just my straight up uh, home IP address. That's it. That's uh, the, the one The one hit in all the logs that we came back to, to Hector Monsegar. Fun times. <laughs> you didn't even put your internet service in a fake name. No, no, because I was like a dad during the day. You know, I was a step. I was a stepfather. During, uh, not stepfather. I was a foster parent during the day. And, um, you know, it was, uh, for the most part, <laughs> I was living two lives. So, yeah, yeah it was, 
you know, once once I clicked on the link, I realized the mistake I made. I quickly closed out of it. I, you know, I, 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 but I realized that yes, my IP was logged in somewhere for sure. So Dropbox says that they're going to upgrade their engineers' hardware to uh, they're going to upgrade their two-factor authentication system to hardware security keys, and, and we are going to get to that this episode, I promise. So, but one thing I want the listeners to realize that uh, if you you know one of the things that were taken in, uh, or, or at least possibly accessed by these bad guys um, was list of names and emails of current and past employees. So, if you were ever or currently a registered user of Dropbox. Just realize that your email uh, may have been compromised, and you may, you know, be a target of phishing in the future. So, um, just just something to think about, and you know, be, be aware of that. That have a little heightened security. That if you get something from Dropbox, um, maybe don't log in through a link you're sent. Well, you know, that's the thing, right? You know, the messaging can be confusing when you read a breach report like this or post breach. Uh, uh, um, I would say disclosure. Information that you're getting from the um, from the disclosure and the conclusion sometimes don't align, right? Because when you're reading through the disclosure, you're you're hearing that yes, the the adversaries were able to access uh, source code repositories. That's terrible for Dropbox. In, in essence, that's their intellectual property, right? Uh, Third party libraries modified for Dropbox. These are potential supply chain attacks, right? Internal prototypes again, intellectual property, tools, configurations as well. Uh, but the names and emails for employees uh, and as well as cu- current and past customers, sales leads, vendors. I mean, at this point, whoever compromised Dropbox essentially has, I wouldn't say the keys of the, to the kingdom, but they have the blueprint for the kingdom. Again, there's no indication that uh, that something was, was stolen from Dropbox, from users' Dropbox accounts, but their information at least is out there. Let's move on to a, an article that I saw. The headline was, uh, Cyber Attacks Are Bypassing Multi-Factor Authentication. Um, did you read that one that I sent over? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I read it. And, you know, it's, it's, it's an interesting story. Um, and I hope that we, we kind of like de- do a deep dive on it for sure. I agree with you that it's an interesting story. The problem is the headline is completely wrong. Well, well, yes, they're bypassing it, but they're trying to make this come out like multi-factor authentication is a bad thing. That having something beyond your username and password, either is it token-based or some sort of app-based or, you know, something like that to have a, a second you know, password or a separate, you know, a code, a one-time code to use is a bad thing. They're not. They're they're doing this through, we've talked about it before, it's called MFA bombing or prompt fatigue, where they, you know, they know your username and password. Maybe they bought it on the dark web and and they're trying to log into the site then, but they still need you to authenticate through the second factor authentication, the, the, the clicking approve. And so they just bombard your phone or your computer over and over and over again until you just hit okay. Um, and we are seeing some hacks done that way, but you know, bypassing multi-factor authentication. There's no flaw in the multi-factor authentication except for the user. You know, I would say that it's definitely a, a poor choice of words, right? Because to bypass is to circumvent, and that's to get around something. So theoretically, right, or to maybe technically speaking, you could uh, say that maybe adversaries are getting around the MFA problem, right? But technically speaking, they're not, right? It, it's one of those weird phrasing and terminology that we kind of need to figure out in the industry because it does cause misinformation, right? And this is more of an implementation problem. I'll give you an example. If you are an organization like Naxo and you start adding employees to your roster 
And you give everybody access to Okta or Duo or any of those service providers, okay? And there's a bunch of them. Now, when you implement multi-factor authentication, whether it's a code that's generated on the app or something else, you could set it, theoretically, to automatically block attempts after one or two attempts, right? You could fine-tune access controls 100%. What we're seeing when we hear MFA uh, fatigue or MFA bombing is that the organizations have not set limits on prompts and or maybe have access control issues or problems. It's also another indicator that they just set it and forget it and really did not fine-tune that setting because this really shouldn't be happening right? After two attempts, you should be blocked. Yeah. Out of the box security is what they're doing. They're just taking a, a tool to implement and, and throwing it up there and not implementing it in the proper ways. hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, I think that's an easy fix. Um, you know, I guess companies need to start, you know, kind of measuring whether, you know, they obviously, I, I don't know of a single company that wants to be hacked into, but how many users are going to get logged in? And, and that just becomes an IT problem of, of, you know, having to fix these logins over and over and over again. Oh, yeah. Well, think about it like this, right? So aside from those platforms that I mentioned, um, on the back end, as you start to connect these platforms to Active Directory, whether it's on-prem or uh, Azure, or using some other system to deal with uh, centralization of user privileges and, and, and permissions, uh, there's even further steps you could take to uh, define the access list or how a user could access uh, sensitive data, right? So just to kind of go deeper to the example, I've seen situations where I was able to compromise an employee's credentials and I was able to get around the MFA problem. But because I came from a specific IP that was not whitelisted, or I logged in at a certain time, the account immediately was locked. So there's there's other rules that you can you can enable to kind of mitigate some of these issues. You, you kind of casually got past there of saying I got around the MFA problem. Do you want to elaborate on that, or do you want to keep that a secret? No, no, it's, it's definitely not a <laughs> secret. I mean, I, I want to give a big shout out to uh, Evo Nginx too. Uh, it's a great tool. It's open source. It's on GitHub. You can find it. You know that capability has been around for several years. This is nothing new. There are ways around MFA. Um, and I believe it leads us to the next story. It leads us to the next story because the next story should also try to mitigate this man in the middle scenario that I just uh, laid out. So we're going to get into FIDO. FIDO is a new, uh, it's not new. I guess it's been around for quite some time, but it's, I think it's still going to be the wave of the future of what we're going to see, what's going to happen in um, logins. I think we're going to get away from passwords and, and usernames. FIDO it stands for Fast ID Online, um, and it's a technology agnostic security specification that allows strong authentication for users through a device. It's, you know, we're, the user, if, if we take shape, if this goes forward and more people get onto it, it's a 
physical device that you plug into your computer and then you authenticate to it with either your fingerprint, your face ID, or a, a short PIN number that you remember. Um, and that really is your login to each one of the each, each site that you use. Yeah. And the cool thing about, you know, Fido and Concept, Fido 2 and Concept, sorry, it kind of pushes the concept of a passwordless, you know, authentication standard, right? I mean, this is what a lot of companies are talking about right now. Firefox and Mozilla, uh, Google, um, Apple, they've, they've already started to implement passwordless authentication using their own means and even follow with the Fido Alliance specifications. Yeah, Microsoft's even signed on. Apple, Google, Microsoft, the big three uh, have signed on to this. So, uh, you know, it's moving forward. Yeah, and that's fantastic. And, and the cool thing about when, you know, when it's time for you to buy or purchase Fido 2 keys, in fact, I just bought a, a big batch for my family, right? I'm, I'm Now I'm going to introduce my family to Fido 2 keys. They got used to, or they've gotten used to MFA. So now let's take it to the next step. Now, the cool thing that I really want to get across is that Fido 2 keys, let's say uh, Ubico, for example, that's the main company making the, the hardware keys. There's a bunch of them also out there, like uh, Google has the Titan keys, as an example. But let's go back to the Ubico keys. Those keys are fantastic because not only do they offer, you know, the web authentication protocol, which which plays a big role in like authenticating with Google and some of these other platforms using your hardware token. But it also allows you to configure different protocols like uh, static passwords per site, you know, and, and there's a bunch of other things that you could uh, configure your devices for. So it's not a one trick pony. You can actually use it for a lot more than just, um, you know, the uh, web authentication portion of it. Yeah, they just expanded it in last May I was reading about. So so the two new things they're, they're going to do is that. When you get a new device, you don't have to re-enroll in every account. Your authentication can go from uh, one device to to the next. And they're also going to allow you to authenticate on your mobile phone or mobile device, uh, sign into an app or website uh, on a nearby device, um, regardless of the OS. Uh, so... If you're on your phone and you're signed into something, uh, say you're on an iPhone, you can walk over to your Windows machine and it'll authenticate right then uh, to each other. So you're not, you know, you're not bogged down with that inconvenience of having to authenticate every single time. You know, so it's expanding that that ease. Yeah, it's fantastic, right? I mean, I've seen some research come out of, uh, especially these, these uh, just amazing uh, security researchers. Uh, there's this guy on Twitter called Mr. Docs who did some research on kind of man in the middle phishing using something called uh, no VNC. VNC is a protocol, kind of like remote desktop. Uh, some of you may know that from like uh, using Windows, but VNC would allow you to, you know, connect to another device, very similar to remote desktop. And his research, the goal of his research there was to create a tool that would allow this kind of platform in the middle to sit there and connect to the target website over this VNC protocol. And when you went to the platform site or the phishing page, you would see uh, literally the website that you want to log into, that you're supposed to log into. When you submit your credentials, again, similar to what we mentioned before, another man-in-the-middle phishing platform. But the idea here is, well, can we use something like this to intercept web authentication? You know, I think the answer is no. There's been other research on on potentially relaying web, authentic web authentication requests, 
but it's very like cursory. Like we're right at the beginning of that stage of research. Yeah, I mean, one thing I want to add that uh, we didn't say at the beginning that that fi- the FIDO protocols uses a public key uh, cryptography technique. We don't need to get into it. So it, it, it involves a, a lot of encryption and all that, and the device and authenticating the device sets up that that authentication, that encryption pairing uh, between your device and the different sites you want to log into. So it, it's not just you know a password stored on the device that's sent back and forth. It's uh, it's used uh, public key uh, cryptography. I can see two things, Hector, that people are going to bitch and moan about this. Um, <laughs> But yeah, I know it's security, so they're going to bitch and moan about everything. Um, <laughs> but they have to realize that it's much more secure than a username and password. Um, but they're going to not enjoy having another device to carry around. Like, you know, I, I think a lot of people are getting away from keys to their car. They just want fobs and all that. Mm-hmm. So they're not going to like having this extra thing that they ha- they need to remember to have with them um, to authenticate. And they're not going to like registering each site when they first set everything up. Yeah, so that that is kind of like the learning curve part of it, right? There is going to have to be a, a time frame where you have to dedicate yourself to configuring your online accounts, uh, Google and Apple and so on, uh, to accept your token or rather your key. You know, depending on how many sites you have uh, signed up to, uh, that might be a, a painstaking endeavor, right? It may take a while. But let's just measure against you know proper cybersecurity posture. You have those same you have those same number of sites. You have a unique password on every one of those sites, and you should be changing that unique password at least every ninety days. So, I mean, if people really are following what's prescribed for for good cyber hygiene. That's a pain in the ass. And so you'll do this once. And then, you know, with this new FIDO2, you know, the that Google and Apple and Microsoft agreed to, it's going to cross platforms. So yeah, the registration is going to suck, but you only have to do it once, not every 90 days like you should be doing. You know, and, and the one thing I'll say is for folks out there that are listening to this and, you, you know, you're ready to jump, you know, jump into it and, and purchase your keys and get ready for that whole experience. Uh, definitely get a pack of two. Get a pack of two because if you lose that main key, you're, you're shit out of luck. You can set up a copy or is that only at registration? Let's say I lose that key and I have that second key. Can I then make another key? Yeah. I mean, so long as that second key is added to your account, right? So the idea is you buy a pack of two and when you register your main key, quote unquote, you also want to register the secondary key. And then you're going to take that secondary key and you're going to lock it away in your in your safe, okay? Because that second key is going to save your life. So let me ask you, what happens if what, – what can a, an attacker do with that first key if it's get lost? Well, if it gets lost, the attacker is still going to need to be able to know the username, email of their target, their intended targets. They still would need to be able to authenticate with some sort of password, right? The way, the way you've probably seen it now is – you go to a website, let's say gmail.com, you put in the username, it asks you for your password. It may also ask you for your key once you put in the right password, okay? Now, the way it should work is, theoretically, you just need to plug in the key into your laptop and go to Gmail and put in your email. It's going to ask you to enter your key. And that's when you authenticate with the token, with the physical key. So here's what could happen. If an attacker gets access to your key, it all depends on configuration. It all depends on how you've configured your accounts. Um, if all it takes is the key to authenticate you in, that might be problematic, right? 
um, the World Wide Web Consortium, WC3C, they've put together um, some, some solid specifications for how authentication should happen. That's why it's very important that you always have your keys with you at all times. And if it is ever stolen, you want to be able to, you know, revoke that key um, as soon as you get access to your accounts with your secondary key. Basically, the way the way web authentication works is an API, really. And so you have, um, let's say, with Gmail. Gmail is the best example. Give you because I've actually used keys with my Gmail accounts. It's funny because I lost my my quote unquote main key for my public email. I can't log into that anymore. <laughs> so just a heads up. Hence the vice for two keys. Lesson learned. But yeah, so you want to make sure you always have a backup. Now, the thing is, when I logged into my my public Gmail, I didn't need to authenticate two or three times, right? It was a matter of that initial authentication and then, of course, entering the key. Once I entered the key, I was able to log into my account. So the key is still going to act like a multi-factor authentication, right? But again, it all depends on the future. It depends on how it's implemented. And it all depends on circumstances. And best practices pull that key out every time you leave your computer, right? That's the that's the best, best practice. But, um, you know, listen, we've, we've tried physical keys before, right? The military still uses cat cards, I think. And then, of course, you had RSA. RSA had the keys before as well. But their keys, you know, had um, they, they approached this problem differently. Um, it would generate tokens based on time and a, a cryptographic hash. And then, you know, it was a whole process. Now, what are we plugging into? Uh, here's how I use it. Um, I have the Yubico um, uh, NFC key, the USB-C. So if I need to authenticate on my phone, I can plug it right into my, my charging port. If I need to authenticate with my laptop, it will go into my USB-C key. I don't use NFC. I'm still kind of hesitant with NFC. But theoretically, I could just have my phone or the key connected to my phone next to my laptop. And that should be enough to authenticate into accounts. A big thing in the business world these days are, you know, getting machines without inputs, you know, no USB ports, no USB-C ports in order to, uh, you know, block people from putting, you know, malicious uh, thumb drives in with malware on it that just runs automatically. How, how are they going to bypass, get past this this problem of not having an interface, but wanting to use these FIDO2 devices? Yeah. So the, the client or, or, the, or the employees in this case could use NFC. Or they can use USB-C. What's NFC? NFC stands for Near Field Communication. And it's 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 basically a, a set of short-range wireless technologies. Uh, the cool thing about it is that a lot of these modern, these keys that are coming out uh, will offer NFC for authentication purposes. Uh, since it is short-range, even more short-range than Bluetooth, for example, uh, you would have to have it somewhere, somewhere, somewhere nearby to your laptop or your phone, you know, uh, you can't just be in the next room. Like someone can't be outside your door with your stolen key authenticating unless you're right out on the other side of that door, if that makes any sense. Sure. So, yeah, I mean, I think there's, uh, you know, some some problems. I, I see where people are going to push back on this, but I do think it's the, you know, the next future in, you know, password and password controls because what we got just it ain't working. Um, too many people are, are, are being taken advantage of with usernames and passwords. Um, you know, uh, if anyone's still using just a username and password to log into something, you know, it's ripe for, for being hacked into. Absolutely. And uh, I'm, I'm actually glad we're getting to this point. Yes, the solutions are not ideal for everyone. But, um, you know, we kind of need to take charge. And I'm happy that 
you know, uh, the final two alliance and all of these major companies have, um, you know, started to adopt or adapt some of these like, new new technologies. Yeah. I mean, you know, electric cars might not be the best thing for everyone, but, you know, I, I want to support the advancement in technology and all that. So these FIDO2 keys are just like that. Um, you know, let's let's start moving forward in that sort of way, because, um, you know, better security is going to be better for everyone in the long run. Well, better for us good guys, you know, the bad guy hackers. We They'll find another way to exploit these, but but we'll come up with another way to, to get around that again. So. The last part, Hector, I wanted to get into uh, before we answer the you, the listeners' questions is just a little heads up. Um, I was reading online that there's a new uh, campaign going out there by cyber criminals that are trying to uh, capitalize on the sort of the chaos going on in, in Twitter. <laughs> yeah. um, a lot of stuff in the news people are reading about. You know, Elon Musk took over Twitter and um, talking about blue check marks and that sort of thing. Um, there's already people going on in phishing campaigns uh, uh, for for known Twitter accounts, uh, trying to get people to click on links and uh, enter usernames and passwords. Um, you know, this is their you know, try to get the blue check mark before you have to pay and all that sort of stuff. Or you know, the the looking like it's coming from Twitter in order to get your blue check mark. Um, just people realize that when there's things like that in the news, um, you know, cyber criminals are opportunistic and they're going to use it to try to steal your passwords. Um, just be aware that stuff like this is happening. Oh yeah. Well, uh, listen, a good friend of mine, I I've mentioned her in the past, I think episode one, uh, I mentioned in the past Theodora Michaels. She actually did a, a really good expose on this. Um, in fact, I saw a couple of tweets that she posted where she highlighted that fishing for the for the blue check mark accounts has been going on for several years, right? It's not a new thing. But like you said, the uptick is definitely here and can be seen because of the news, right? The melodrama surrounding um payment for the blue check mark, which I'll be honest with you, it's not the best move business wise, but um, you know, there's definitely an uptick because of adversaries are opportunistic. Absolutely. Yeah. Just wanted to make Hacker and the Fed listeners aware and, you know, raise your cybersecurity awareness a little bit. So, Hector, as we mentioned every week, uh, you know, we love to get questions from the audience. Uh, if you have a question that you want to know about being a black hat, about being an FBI agent or about cybersecurity or you see one of those stories like we pointed out today with a misleading headline and you kind of want to know what really is it's all about. Send us your questions at questions at hackerinthefed.com. Uh, we'd love to hear from the listeners and uh, answer those questions. So we got a question from uh, Jorge. Um, it's, a, it's a bunch of questions. There's a couple FBI ones. So I'm just going to go through them one, one at a time and uh, answer Jorge's questions. Are you ready, Hector? Oh, yeah. I'm excited. Let's do it. All right. So Jorge asked, how often did you have to get rid of agents because they did not make the cut or because of impropriety? That's an interesting. So the FBI Academy is uh, is really where you see this. Uh, and there's a few points along the way where they get rid of people. Um, one of the most shocking ones is during week 16 on the firearms. We've we've shot with our guns, the guns that we're going to carry for you know our careers. And um, we've probably shot, I think it's somewhere around 3,200 rounds by then. So we're pretty proficient with it. Um, Week 16 is firearms test day, um, and you have to shoot three three um, 
qualifying rounds. Uh, it's 50 rounds per, per qual, and you have to get a certain score, and you have to pass at least two out of the three. Um, and there's a little bit of a contest about who can have the best score, if you can get a perfect score, uh, and all that sort of thing. Um, and so you go through and you shoot the first round, and you kind of pay attention about who didn't pass and who did pass. I'd say most, most people passed. And then we do round two. And you kind of see, you know, some people that, that you know, the, all the people that didn't pass the first round, pass the second round, um, and then we get the pressure of the third round. And literally, there was one guy in my class who failed out. This was a former cop. So he had been around firearms all the time. He failed the third round. So he failed round one and round three. So there's there's agents that are already, you know, been through the academy and out in the field and they come back and they're like the class counselor. They literally walked him off the firing range up to his room, packed his stuff and put you in a cab home. Like that's how much pressure's on it. They, they, like we weren't even off the firing range before he was like packing his stuff up. Yeah. I mean, that's such an interesting point because I know that in some places around this country, I, I've, I've, I've known plenty of cops from different jurisdictions and I know that some cops get more training the other than others, uh, depending on where you're at. Uh, do you think that's what happened with him? He probably just did not have. I mean, he might have been around guns, but he wasn't really shooting guns. No, it's actually the opposite way. So the FBI has a way and a style they want you to shoot in. And so what happens is they have to unteach like former military, former law enforcement, the way they were taught to shoot and teach them the FBI way of doing things. So I, I think this guy just was caught in that. You, you feel the pressure. I mean, literally, they are warming up the the, the taxi for you to walk you out. Um, it also happens on PT or, or physical training day. Um, you know, I'll tell a story that, that I almost got kicked out of the academy. So you get to the academy on a Sunday and, um, you know, I... I'm, I'm kind of a big baby, but you know that Hector, um, I don't sleep well in a different bed or and all that. And so like Sunday night, I'm not sleeping. I'm feeling the pressure of, you know, I gotta, you know, get through this. This is, you know, I, I'm living in a dorm. I go from, you know, living in my nice house with a, a nice bed and all that to I'm living in a dorm in a, in a mattress that, you know, probably 30 other people have slept on before me. So I'm not sleeping well. I'm not doing well. And then PT day is, um, is I, th I think it was the Thursday of the first week. And so the, the PT, the physical test for the FBI is um, you have to do as many sit-ups as you can do in a minute. And then it's a five minutes rest. Then you go out and run the 300 meter and you have to do it in less than 52 seconds. And then you do as many push-ups as you can do without stopping. There's no time, but you, your cadence has to be on all, you know, down, up, down, up, down, up. And they judge how deep you go. Um, and then you have to run a mile and a half in less than 12 minutes in like 10 seconds or something like that. Um, with five minutes rest in between each event. And then there's a scoring system. You, you know, for as many sit-ups as you get, you get a certain number of points. And for, you know, as many, how fast you can run, there's so many points and you have to get, over 12 points, and this is what I went through. I'm not sure the same what is still that way. You have to get at least one point in each event, and you have to have get a total of 12 points. I'm kind of a big guy. Uh, all through college, I was a power lifter. So, you know, the uh, the the powerlifting is is how much weight can you move in one time? So that's like squatting down. I, I squat down, stand back up. How much weight can you do? 
that doesn't really go well with running. On the 300 meters, it was rough for me. So this is kind of a big day at the FBI Academy. Um, all the big bosses come out, all the former agents that are around, they come and they stand in the middle of the track. It's sort of like a, a hazing incident at a, um, at a, a fraternity. So I'm coming around the curve, uh, this, the, set, the big curve. I go through the straightaway and then the curve and the 300 meter, and I'm running as fast as I, I fucking can go. And I eat it. I fall straight on my face. No way. Hit the, I hit the ground so hard that I broke three ribs. Wow. I, 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 yeah. I stood up, and my legs were jelly, and I fell right straight back down to the ground. And then I, then I got up, and I, I bloody and all that, and I hobbled across the line. I finally got, I got in. But I got no points. So I failed the PT test. I, I went off. I still did my push-ups. I still ran the mile and a half, and, uh, but I failed the PT test um, because I fell. I didn't get around the track. For, I don't know. I just, I guess the pressure got to me or something. And um, a couple things. I didn't tell anybody about my ribs because if you have an injury, you get what's called recycled. Um, you get sent back to your field office and you work like a clerical job until you heal. And then you go back and you start the academy all over again. I wasn't going to do that. I, 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 you know, I had my class and that's what I wanted to go through. And I wasn't, so I, you know, I laid there with my, you know, hurt and all that. I was later told that, that I almost got kicked out because of that incident because falling down. Um, and you know, I, I, I went to the head of the academy. I had to meet with them. They called me down there and another guy. So you do your PT test in week one and week seven. Um, if you pass one of them, then you don't have to do it anymore. I told him, I said, I promise you, I will pass week seven. I will work as hard and I will try not to fall again. I think he had a little mercy for me because he was out there when I fell. He's like, oh yeah, you're the guy that fell. Um, you know, I think because I stood up and still made it across the finish line because I then still did the push-ups, and I then did still run the mile and a half. I think they let me keep going. Um, and that's sort of why they let me, let me stay in. Um, but that, that one kicked my ass. So, you know, Hori, that that's a little bit of a long answer about, you know, didn't making the cut. Um, and you know, I almost didn't make the cut, so I don't make the cut. Um, who knows what happens with the little set case? Who knows what happens with the Silk Road case? This podcast wouldn't be happening. So all because I, I couldn't run 300 meters without falling down and breaking a couple of ribs. Well, I tell you, I, I, I respect, you know, I respect the fact that you were hungry for that and you really wanted to achieve that goal. Um, and I'm happy that you were, you know, you was able to do it and they didn't kick you out because I think that every, I, I think everything would have been so much different right now. You may not have been arrested. Who knows? <laughs> Oh, no, I would have got arrested by a jerk. <laughs> and so, Jorge, your second part of the question was, uh, how does the FBI police itself? Um, there's internal, um, just like normal police departments, there's uh, there's whole departments that, that kind of investigate agents and improprieties. Um, one thing the FBI always did is it was called OPR, the Office of Personal Responsibility. Um, they put out a quarterly kind of email about, you know, things that they, they anonymized it, but where, you know, other agents had fucked up and what they had done and, you know, the punishment for it. So it, it was well put out there about, you know, how, uh, how it, you know, how we police ourselves and what's done internally. Um, and some, I've seen agents walked out. Um, you know, I was, 
uh, one of the things in New York, um, you go through a rotation when you get to New York and uh, um, you're put on a squad that does like applicant uh, interviews. And uh, part of that is like you do background investigations. Uh, I was lucky enough to, to, to work on the Sotomayor. Um, she was a Supreme Court justice. Uh, she is a Supreme Court justice. Uh, I did part of her background. So that I thought that was a pretty good, uh, pretty interesting uh, part of my early career. No, that's very cool. So the rotation, you do the new agents, you get there, you kind of learn the city, you're on the applicant squad, and then you get called up and you have to do what's called go to the NIOC or it's the New York Operations Center. And um, you're in there with a, a, an agent that's assigned there, works there full time, um, does the calls, does the radio, does that sort of thing. And I was working the overnights and there was a, a, a guy there um, and they came in, they walked him out. Uh, he was fired right there in the spot. No. Yeah. And I'm, I'm as a new agent. I've only been in New York office for a couple of months and I'm running <laughs> the NIOC overnight. I'm like, Oh shit. <laughs> Somehow I made it through it. Hector. I don't even know. I was sweating bullets, uh, but uh, you know, it, luckily nothing happened. I know that you and I have had discussions in the past and I've seen other folks kind of give numbers and statistics in regards to uh, the FBI manpower across this entire country. It seems like the FBI is undermanned. Am I wrong on that? I don't think they're undermanned. I mean, obviously, they're, they're they you know you always want more, but then you hit budgetary restrictions. I mean, it, it costs a lot of money to turn someone into an FBI agent. There's a lot of you know 21 weeks of training is uh, is a lot to pay. Um, you know, there. It's interesting to look at the numbers. I don't. I don't know where the numbers are now, but it, you know, I was an agent in New York City, and I was told there's somewhere between like eleven thousand and twelve thousand FBI agents worldwide, and there's forty some odd thousand NYPD cops. Um, so, and what NYPD is almost four times the size of the FBI. So, you know, you may not feel that the FBI overall is undermanned. What about cyber? FBI agents are dedicated to cyber. Is that a number that you feel comfortable with today or you feel like there's not enough agents doing that kind of work? I think that since we've seen like the rise in cryptocurrency fraud, um, I, I don't think, you know, if the FBI is going to handle that, um, you know, and be the exclusive agency to handle that. I mean, I don't know Secret Service does some. Um, I, I think then there's that's so prevalent these days then yeah, they're probably undermanned, um, you know, because, you know, at Naxo, we get, you know, cryptocurrency fraud victims, you know, the numbers per day is staggering. Um, the number of people that have been hacked into and their, 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 their cryptocurrency was stolen um, and just need help. I mean, the people losing their life savings because of this. So uh, I think that, I think, Due to that, they're undermanned. Um, you ransomware out of control, uh, so they're probably undermanned. So yeah, I'd say cyber is undermanned. But again, so we're taking a hundred thousand dollars, and th those were the rough numbers when I went through is what training was, and then applying cyber on top of it. You know, it's difficult to get a cyber agent because you know you're looking for someone with a skill set that probably is paid more than a typical FBI agent, um, and less, a lot of people with cyber skills have you know less than a stellar background. Um, and so they still need to, you know, hit those, those milestones in to become an FBI agent that, so it, it's, you know, hard run both ways. 
And then, you know, they need to do a better job with retention um, and holding FBI agents. So Jorge has some more questions. Jorge, we'll answer it. We've gone too deep now. We've gone too far with the, the, this. So we're going to wrap up this episode. So thanks for, for listening to Hacker in the Fed. Uh, new episodes every Thursday. Download and subscribe. You know, we're, we're killing it, but we can always have more listeners and, and grow bigger and, and get the cybersecurity message out. So download and subscribe wherever you get your podcast. And there you go. Thanks for listening. Another great episode. Cheers. Thank you.